Welcome to Women Read Scripture. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Christine Thackeray. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Michelle Wilson. Well, we're happy to have Kim and Michelle here with us again today. We're just, it's wonderful to have you come back. So um, we worry sometimes that maybe people won't come back. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Today we're talking about Ephesians. And Ephesus was an ancient port city, which now, I mean, we should take a little side trip to Ephesus because (laughs) it's very well preserved and the ruins are still there. And it's also in modern day Turkey, like we talked about many of these Towns that we're Turkey's going to be discussing. A scary place. I don't want to go with you. Mariana. Oh, I think it would be fun. Um, the city was once considered the most important Greek city out of the whole world. I mean, out of the whole Greek world, and it was the most important trading center in the Mediterranean region. And so, I oftentimes think about Ephesus as the London of the Victorian era, in that it brought the East and the West together. I mean, that's where it was located. The The port kind of brought those two things together. And um, because of this, you can imagine the worldliness of this wonderful, amazing city was very trying on the early saints. Basically, it has a wonderful story. And we talked about this in Acts 19, where this it's also the number one god there is Diana. Now, Diana, the the Greek is Artemis, the Roman is Diana, and she is the goddess of the hunt, fertility, the moon, but she's also the virgin goddess, and so she is the one that oversees and protects the unborn children. And so she was a very popular goddess in that basically Demetrius, who was one of many silversmiths and goldsmiths in that town, who would make coins. And on these coins would be the image of Diana. And then you would keep these coins. They weren't necessarily used. You could use them for, for exchanging. But basically, they were coins that you kept to be able to have you know, a good hunt or to have so a like baby. A good luck charm. It was like a good oh, luck wow. charm. And so it was something that you, you kept so that Diana was always with you. Well, when basically Paul came originally and he preached the gospel there, he did such a great job that it actually hurt Demetrius and other you know, silver and goldsmiths, their livelihood, because people weren't buying the coins. They were like, okay, you know, there's not, you know, this isn't a goddess. There's only one true God, and it was becoming a problem. A matter of fact, the description in in Acts is that um, Paul, basically, Demetrius caused, caused no small stir. And I love that, no small stir. <laughs> and to the point where they were going to take Paul, the implication is they probably were going to try to kill him. And the Ephesian officials, however, protected Paul during this time, and his followers, eventually Christianity, would become the city's most um, important and official uh, religion. And for me, that's pretty strong in that we have this amazing experience there where people are rioting against Paul. And yet over time, because of the faithfulness of the saints in Ephesia, they are able to bring Christianity so much to this city, this huge city, 
that basically Christianity is the, the ruling religion there. So the theme for this time and our discussion in Ephesians would be basically, I saw it as Ephesians 6.10. Finally, and I would say my sisters rather than my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And that's kind of what happened to Paul. He was strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And even though they had this uproar and this no small stir, he was able to be victorious because of that. So my thought to you and my question for you is, how do we handle uproars in our own lives? And also, how do we react when neighbors and people around us are the reason for the uproar? Because, you know, basically this was all within the one city. They were all neighbors to each other. And you're having people that are joining the church and others that are causing this terrible uproar in the city. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm thinking they did it right if everybody joined the church and that's eventually, yeah. eventually. But at this, so, you know, in at right. Acts 19, and that so wasn't the case. So that's where I do think it's it's hard, but you meet that kind of anger with gentleness. You know that that without sharpness, you reprove. You know, with kindness, and that increase of love. Yes, and Paul does again call for unity and loving kindness. I and, know. Yes, and long suffering. Yes, long suffering. <laughs> yeah, <Her> favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love the idea that Paul's asking them to stand strong. He's not saying, you know, leave your post and go over and just do whatever it takes to make them happy, but know who you are, know what you believe, and act as Jesus would. At Which this sometimes means, oh, you fool. No, just <laughs> it's true. But realize, too, that Paul at this point, he's worried for the Ephesian saints. Right. He's, he's worried about their faithfulness. And now we know the end story. We know that the mm -hmm. Christianity became strong in that city. But mm -hmm. realize at this point, it's kind of touch and go. And he's concerned that they do stay strong. And so, um, and that goes with this idea. One of the first things he talks about is this idea that you are chosen of God and that they're, you know, this idea of foreordination. And so I'm going to turn that over to Michelle because that's a much more difficult concept than I can wrap my mind around. So I'm going to let you do it. <laughs> oh, I totally get it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think the idea of foreordination uh, is is a big it's a big, deep topic. But before I, I jump into that, I want to look at verse three, because I think he says something really beautiful here. Oh, definitely. That I wanted to chapter ask one? Mm -hmm. Sorry, chapter, chapter one. one, Ephesians chapter one, verse three. And he and I love how, again, uh, this is kind of his pattern. He says, mm -hmm. this is me, and then grace be with you and peace from God our Father, yep. from the Lord. And then verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings mm -hmm. in heavenly places in Christ. Oh. So I look at that and I and I think, what is he trying to say? What do you guys think? What catches your attention here? Because I think that there's a number of different answers we could have. I'm not like trying to find uh -huh. one. But what do you think when you read this um, spiritual blessings in heavenly places? What comes to your mind? Well, I'm thinking of all those temples in the oh, Temple yeah. of Diana, the places that aren't heavenly. Yeah. But if we stay in those heavenly places, whether our home or whether they're church meeting places, that that's where those spiritual blessings, you know, kind of take root and expand. And so where we go makes a big difference in the amount of spirit we have. Yeah. Well, and if you see pictures of Ephesus, it was a beautiful city. Mm. I mean, it was magnificent. 
And so, you know, I think sometimes we think things that happened thousands of years ago, oh, it can't, it can't be as nice as mm-hmm. what we have. When you look at Ephesus, you're going, this was a gorgeous city. And so heavenly off, places. A heavenly places. <laughs> and so I do think sometimes when we think about heavenly places, we have this misjudgment that it must be gorgeous and it must be amazing. And instead, what I think he's trying to say doesn't matter how humble a place you live in. You can make it a heavenly place mm-hmm. because of your faith in the Lord mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. I feel like any any place you are where you are striving to keep and strengthen your covenants is a heavenly place. Mm-hmm. That's why Paul can be in prison, and prison can oh, be yeah. a heavenly place. The temple can be a heavenly place. Our home can be a heavenly place. Even if some people in our home aren't keeping those covenants, it can still be a heavenly place because you are. So I just, I love that he empowers them and he lets them know, first of all, wherever you are, if you're faithful, that's a heavenly place. So you're safe. And then he goes on with just, he just drops his bomb on. I love it. Verse four. And there's, so we're going to break it down. There's a couple truths in here that I really love before he gets to the big thing. He says, according as he hath chosen, um, oh, I don't want to put my readers on, but I'm going to. (laughs) According as he hath chosen, us in him before the foundation of the world. So I just want to read something from Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, verses 29, 33, and 34. I love and it says, man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. For man is spirit. The elements are eternal and spirit and element, inseparably connected, receiving a fullness of joy. And when separated, man cannot receive a fullness of joy. And Paul was all about connecting, connecting them to Christ, connecting them with faith. And I love that he lays his foundation of first, you lived before you came, which is something that most other organized Christian religions don't teach now. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that we know that. And then it goes on to say that we had a purpose, right? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. There's a purpose to our life. There's a purpose to what he, he wants for us. Um, and I love that we are chosen. So in Abraham 3, 23, uh, 22 and 23, this is what Abraham is saying. Now the Lord has shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all of these were many noble and great ones. And God saw these souls, that they were good. And he stood in the midst of them and said, These I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirit, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou was chosen before thou wast born. Now, I, I feel like I used to read this and I'd be like, well, what about all the other ones? Like, are we all standing around? <laughs> and like, and my father goes, you guys are the good. I'll, I'll get to you in a second. You guys are the chosen. But I feel like this is actually the first recorded leadership meeting <laughs> where he was like, you know, here, I've asked you not because you're special or better, but because you have been called. You have been asked to do someone and you are chosen. And so he's letting these, these saints know, these early saints, that you were chosen. You were prepared. You were ready. And I just love that he takes this opportunity to empower, empower them and keep them strong. You know, and I, and I want to ask you guys, but it's, it's sometimes hard when you hear a question like this. But is there a time in your life when you have felt just empowered from Heavenly Father, when you have felt the Spirit just tell you, you were, I knew you before, and you are someone that is chosen. Have you ever felt uplifted and strengthened? 
Well, in my patriarchal blessing, it says that I chose my parents and other members of my family. Yeah. And so I that promise was so funny because I was arguing with my parents when I decided to get my patriarchal blessing. I was like, <laughs> man, I was stupid in the pre-existence. But I wasn't because our parents were wonderful, faithful, learned well, so much. And on the other hand, I want you to know that I just love the fact that our mother always would say, you are glorious. Mm. And that was her mm. favorite term was glorious. And, you know, That's we were true. glorious and we were, you know, there was never a question that we weren't loved. Oh, yeah. And so I, I think the power of having parents also saying that, that, that you were chosen, you are mine, you were, you know, you were meant to be a part of this family. Right. As mothers, we say that to our children to help them to understand that, you know, we love them and we chose them. Right. But don't you also think the Lord puts people in places where they would be exposed to the gospel? Mm -hmm. And so he really does choose who would have those opportunities. So they really are chosen in this life. In this life. In this right. Life. And that's what we're talking about is he's talking about those people in Ephesians right. yeah. that were chosen mm -hmm. to be there to stand up against you know, those who are pushing. And he right. uses the words like predestination and foreordination. And I think foreordination, I think a lot of people assume that that just means this is your life and you have no agency. But again, I'm a big fan of that word, if. We always have agency. And so I love the idea that foreordination, in fact, I'll just tell you what Elder Maxwell said about it. Right. Elder Maxwell, he said, foreordination is like any other blessing. It is a conditional bestowal subject to our faithfulness. So it's basically an invitation, a calling that's been extended. Prophecies foreshadow events without determining the outcomes because of a divine foreseeing of outcomes. So foreordination is a conditional bestowal of a role, a responsibility or a blessing, which likewise foresees but does not fix the outcome. And I, I love this because, again, it goes back to what we choose. And I, I, we just talked about mothers choosing their kids. Um, we adopted our youngest daughter when she was seven and she had kind of a, um, a difficult childhood and, and with that comes some difficult behaviors. And so I went to my Bishop and I just said, I need a blessing because you know, did I choose this? I mean, have you guys ever wondered, <laughs> did I choose this trial? Like, you know, um, but the blessing told me something very unexpected. And it said that, that my daughter Grace was able to, um, look down and she asked him if she could be raised in a family that had the gospel. Mm. And she wanted to be in our family. And, and um, you know, I don't know how the heavenly timeline works. I'd had his hysterectomy. I couldn't have kids. But she chose to go through her birth mother so she could be raised in our family. I'd like to think it's partially for me. But that's how badly she wanted the gospel. Um, and she has things to do. And the idea that she could be foreordained or predestined, but I like to say called and given the opportunity, that gives, we've talked about this a lot, it gives us so much hope oh, yeah. that there are things that God knows that she could do if mm -hmm. she wanted mm -hmm. and that she's equipped to do it. So I think, I think this is a great way that um, Paul is empowering them and us because you jump to verse 10, he talks about in the fullness mm -hmm. of times that he mm -hmm. might gather together in one all things. And that's our time, Right. And this is something that we have the opportunity, that we, we were part of that group that he says, I want you to have this opportunity to be part of that Abrahamic covenant, that family. So I just love that this is what he starts with. I mean, he just starts in with a bang, doesn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't go soft. He's like, you guys have a purpose. You have an opportunity. Stay strong.
I love well, that purpose. And along with that, too, I think is the flip side, and I don't mean to be a downer, but we saw this so much in the Doctrine and Covenants where mm-hmm. you would see these great blessings that were given to people in terms of telling, you know, in, in the pre-mortal life, mm-hmm. all these wonderful blessings. And if you continue faithful, mm-hmm. all these amazing things will happen. And then literally, you know, just right after that, they left the church. Yeah. And so I think Paul is also... He does use some cautionary tale here too. A couple, you know, some of these verses are also saying, "Cease not, don't forget." Right. You know, all of these other things yeah. too with the foreordination. Mm-hmm. So just because you're foreordained doesn't mean you can't fall too. No, and you can, but yeah. also, even if you do fall, I love, I love that there's always redemption, way back. Right. I, I, which agree. is different than I'm going to walk away and do stuff and come back and repent later. Because that speaks to the condition of your heart. But, you know, I've known people who get their patriarchal blessing and then they make different choices. And later in life, they're like, I'm never going to get those blessings. And that's not true. But God can make it work. The moment, and and Amulek talks about this in Alma, um, Alma 34, where he says immediately, the moment you turn your heart to him, immediately the the plan of salvation takes a hold in your life. So I just, I love the hope that he's given Mm -hmm. them. Be be cautious, be strong, but there's always hope. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that verse, you know, in first, first Ephesians 10, when it talks about, you know, all things in Christ, I know, Kim, you were going to talk a little bit more about that. And it is such an exciting time to be alive on this earth, is it not? And how wonderful that Paul spoke of it to us. Um, I'll repeat that verse again, just so we can review it. And then I'd love to elaborate on that a little bit more. It says again, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather, this is the gathering of Israel he's talking about, together in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So in second Nephi, we get a little bit clearer picture of, I think what he's talking about. It says, and it shall come to pass that the Jews which are scattered also shall begin to believe in Christ, and they shall begin to gather in upon the face of the land, and as many as shall believe in Christ shall also become a delightsome people. And it shall come to pass that the Lord God shall commence his work among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people to bring about the restoration of his people on the earth. I love the restoration of his people. Um, that they will be restored. So Elder Bednar in October 2018 gave a general conference talk entitled Gather All Things Together in One. And he uses the analogy of a rope, if I could share this with you. Um, And I want to know what you guys think the rope is. If it's people or things, could be both. Um, A rope is an essential tool with which all of us are familiar. Ropes are made from strands of fabric, plants, wire, or other materials that are each individually twisted or braided together. Interestingly, substances that may be quite unexceptional, can be woven together and become exceptionally strong. Thus, effectively connecting and binding ordinary materials can produce an extraordinary tool. Just as a rope obtains its strength from many intertwined individual strands, so the gospel of Jesus Christ provides the greatest perspective of truth and offers the the richest blessings as we heed the admonition of Paul to gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in the heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. Importantly, this vital gathering of truth is sent in and focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So what do we think? Are we are we the strands? Do you think programs of the church? I mean, he does give a couple examples, but what are your thoughts? Well, I think you can look at it a number of ways. Um, you know, you can, my mind immediately went to a talk that I heard and I cannot remember who gave it, but he talked about a string or a rope. And he said, um, say it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? If you have this rope that's tied around a gift, a string, you're going to open up and then toss it. 
You're not going to care about it. But if you're hanging from a cliff and you're holding on to that, you are praying that that rope is strong and you realize it's life-saving. So I immediately think of um, the gospel and the fibers that make up that rope that save us, you know, is faith and repentance and baptism by the proper authority and, and just all of those things in the plan of salvation and realizing that your life really hangs on those makes me want to grasp onto that rope tighter and tighter. And I was thinking that sometimes people have an issue with one little strand, mm. but they have, they feel strong about all the other pieces and that one strand that they'll throw the whole rope away for one strand. And you're like, but there's this piece and this piece. And I think if you look at it as one, as the gospel is one, it's not like you can pull the strands apart. They're so connected. And so if we understand that the Book of Mormon is true and the gospel of Christ is revealed, if you find a little strand that may not be the perfect type of rope, all things are one in Christ. It's part of the whole thing, and it makes it stronger as you understand oh, I like that. their connection. Because well, not everything is going to be the perfect right. fiber. Right. You know? <laughs> and that goes right along with people. Right. Well, it's you know, the, so people the people that is the fiber right. that's the yucky part. And so, and so I <laughs> yeah. do think that sometimes we do the same thing with people, just yes, like we you were do. saying, where, you know, somebody will offend us or somebody will say something that we don't agree with. And, so, and we just throw the whole rope away because the, the whole one little rope away just because of that one little strand. When it's the and thing that not... can save us. I love right. that, the idea of holding yeah. on. You have to hold on. I do too. And then I'll finish with this, what he said. Much like the braided strands of a rope produce a powerful and durable tool, all of these interrelated actions are part of you united effort to better align the focus, resources, and work of the Savior's restored church with its fundamental mission to assist God in his work to bring to pass the salvation and exaltation of his children. And, you know, Elder Bednar just ends with something so beautiful. Here he says, I pray that we can recognize the Lord's work as one great worldwide work that is becoming ever more home-centered and church-supported. I know and testify that the Lord is revealing and will yet reveal many great important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But then in Ephesians 4, um, chapter 4, verse 13. I love this verse. I think it is so beautiful and gives us that, that perspective on all of us coming together as, as one unified in Christ and all of our efforts as well. I think, I think it is both, right? Um, it says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man or woman, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I just think that as we go from a scattering of people to a gathering together in Christ, uh, this earth won't be utterly wasted, that everyone through temple ordinances and through the atonement of Jesus Christ can receive the ultimate blessings and be gathered unto him and our Father in heaven eventually someday. I love that, that it talks about the unity of the faith, so you get the idea of the people, mm -hmm. and then the knowledge of Christ. So it has both the principles and the, and people, the people in one. So well, it really is what's all things. intertwined in that rope. Right, that we're all principles kind of... Principles and the people. Right. We need yeah. each other. We're all stuck in there. We're all stuck together. <laughs> People are pulling on us. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, and as we talk about those things, there are also the foundations that we need to remember. And I know, Christine, you're going to talk about some of those foundations yes. to the gospel. So, uh, this is just a silly, interesting thing, but um, I uh, struggled with... Um, I have a lot of friends that... Um, I would used to, I used to talk, I've never lived in a Mormon community, so let me start there. So I just seem to always have friends with a lot of evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. And I even went to Hershey and, and we'd love to have these long biblical talks and I joined their study group and just had so much fun. But one of the things they always come up with is the idea of works versus grace. And the works is talking 
in the scriptures with Paul about specifically the law of Moses. It's not talking about works because Paul tells us over and over again, he gives us lists of things to do. There's many, many works that we have to do that are, are part of Christ. But I always would be worried because you can with confidence when they pull out uh, uh, you know, like faith without works is dead or whatever. Um, then you say, oh, read one more line. Yeah. And the one more line will say, but you must do da 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 da. Yeah. And there's right. always a do that follows that faith without works. So you feel like, oh, so easy. Just like say, okay, just keep on reading, like read it in context. <laughs> but the one in Ephesians 2 is the one that is so black and white that talks about um, works and there's not a faith after it. But I, I do love it because I'm in verse, um, I'm going to start in 13. Now in Christ, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So people that are Gentiles are made one. And then he says, for he is our peace who hath broken both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And so people will pull that scripture out saying we don't need the temple anymore. Because when Christ died, the temple veil mm -hmm. was rent. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, this is the proof that you don't need the temple. And it was so interesting because mm -hmm. while I was driving over here, listening to the radio, I turned to a Christian station and they were just saying about, we don't need the temple. And I love this because Christ did rend the temple. And in the old temple, you couldn't go through it. Nobody went through it but the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And now when we go through the temple because of Christ, what do we do? We go through every time. You can go through every day it's open. Yeah. It's like so cool. If you could fly, you could do it every day of the week because you did the. <laughs> <laughs> so it is just such a gift that Christ, we do believe Christ broke down that partition and it made the temple so awesome. Mm -hmm. But this is one where I'd always be like, oh, if you keep on reading, it's not there. But it's because I was only a verse or two. You go down to 19... And it says, now, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and at the household of God and are built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. I just have to say, read seven more verses and there it is, <laughs> because those externals are so key. Mm -hmm. They're the foundation. They're the beauty. And that tells you how the Lord has a structure. It's not just... It is our relationship, but there's also the structure. There's the order that we have to work through. The authority matters. Right. And so um, to me, that is so, so beautiful. I love um, President Holland, or I keep on calling him President Holland. It's Elder Holland. Elder Holland um, talked about a note that he received, and the note was given by a woman who wrote this. She said, 41 years ago, I prayed earnestly to the Lord to tell him I wished I had lived on the earth sorry, I'm going to cry, when the apostles walked upon it, when there was a true church and Christ's voice was still heard. And within a year of that prayer, Heavenly Father sent two LDS missionaries. Mm -hmm. And I find that all my hopes have been realized. So years ago, I worked for a shoe company and um, I was in charge of finding the lost shoes and I was really good at my job. I always found them. And I loved calling people because I could say, okay, you have to prove to me. And they'd be like in Brazil because we were through Brazil. And they'd always steal them. You just knew they were. But you, you know, you kind of use the suite and then you get them and then you just like always win. And you'd be like, ha, I found it. It was fun. It was a great job. But every Friday, 
the um, company had a lot of money and they take the whole staff out and then all get drunk. They do happy hour together and the company paid for it. And I was the only person that didn't drink. And I was like, there's no way. And they try and talk me into it. They buy me all these things. And I'm like, honey, I'm not going to do it. There's no way. That's just, it's because, and they're like, so one day my boss comes over and comes up to me on a Monday and he said, Christine, I need to know what's different about your church. And I knew we had one click you know he could handle one Mm -hmm. and so the thing I said to him was we have a modern day prophet that tells us what is true and I said because of that connection the church itself because my relationship would still be the same I feel with Christ but having that external having those covenants gives us such a structure that we can live within and so much power. And the first thing he said to me was, oh, that's so cool. Tell me what he said lately. And I was like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) and I couldn't remember because it was a, anyway, I was going to say it was a boring prophet, but um, (laughs) we have one that's way more together. So um, my question is, I'm going to say, Christine, we As your older sister, no, we don't say things like I that. I know. About no, the it prophet. was as Jeff Benson, so he wasn't speaking very much. So, well, you know what I mean. So it was anyway. It was that period of time. But um, right now, so my question to you is: We have apostles and prophets on the earth, and I'm going to focus on the prophets. So, what if he? What has he said lately? What is the gift of what he's taught us in that revelation? Do you have any things that you remember recently? Mm-hmm. Oh, can, yeah. I, can I just add one? Yes. Other comment to what you just said. It's verse 21, and I think we have to read that verse yeah, in context. About oh, yeah, 21 and 22. Because he said, In whom all the building fitly framed mm-hmm. together groweth unto an holy temple in the oh, Lord. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I didn't read for it. You didn't yes. read the next verse. I know. Verse. I was going to oh, share you. Oh, my goodness. In whom ye also <laughs> are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Yeah. That's and beautiful. that's the temple one. That's yeah. the temple. And it's so funny because that's the one they use, and the answer's right there. The answer's Can right you believe there. it? So the next time one of your friends, if you don't live in a Mormon community, come up to you and use this one because it is their favorite, the partition. I've had it thrown at me at least four times. Well, there's the holy temple wow. right there. Yeah. And I Isn't think that, that, so wild? that idea of being fitly, I love that mm-hmm. verse, that all I the know. building fitly framed. So it's not yeah. just thrown together. Yeah. You know, it's something that has right. been ordered right. and architect. And into the knows. Holy Temple. Into the when holy the Holy Temple. temple that is so cool. Okay, I am like blown away happy. <laughs> but I think I think what we're seeing here, though, doesn't only apply to people who aren't members of the church, but oh, for absolutely. people who are. A lot of times if you're if you're doubting or if you have a question... I think the answer isn't to stop looking, but to keep looking in the right sources. Right. Mm-hmm. Keep searching. Go to a few more Sundays. And you find Ask a few so more much questions more. to the people that that are um, wanting to give you answers. Um, I just love the fact. And we just it. got to see this right now. And look, where you're just in like, context, just it's and all about context. context. Yeah. It is yeah. all but about But going back context. to your question about what the prophet is teaching, he's teaching about temples. Mm-hmm. He's always he's talking about, about temples. temples. And he's always and he's teaching about being a peacemaker. My yes. husband said he was talking to um he's just started working in the temple on Thursday nights and he loves it. Um, and he was talking to a gentleman who his mom described the temple as being, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on the word. It's it's the place when you're in a foreign country and it's the embassy. embassy. It's, yeah, the Lord. It's God's embassy 
on the foreign soil of mortality. Because no matter where you are, you walk into the temple and you're on God's soil. You're on his land. And so I love the fact that it's not done away with, that there are how many temples now? I know. In order, hundreds, Mm. hundreds of places where we can go and step onto God's soil and be in his land, in In his heavenly place. In that (laughs) heavenly, heavenly, doubled square. Oh, wow. Yeah. So cool. And the temples is a huge one where he talked about now is the time to repent. Now is the time to go to the temple. Mm -hmm. And he said those specific words. And I love how he says repentance isn't about doing bad things and not doing them, but repentance is getting closer to Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And that's what he's asking us to do. Yeah, we talked about that before, about reconciling ourselves to God, which I love when you're a marriage, you know, you're constantly reconciling. It's like you have a little edge then. And I'm like, I can do that with the Lord where, you know, some days it's like, I don't want to do what you're telling me, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a good thing. Well, and that's a perfect segue into what I'm going to talk about in terms of Ephesians 5 to the beginning of 6 where the Lord uses some interesting words. In Ephesians 5, 21 through 22, he says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now notice he says fear of God, not fear of man. Mm -hmm. He says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, I think for for women, that. that whole idea of submission, and then you go to 24 and he uses the word subjection, those words kind of rankle some women and that they're like, ooh, you know, submit, subject. But I love the second half. It's under right. the Lord. I know, I like know. Under the Lord. They're doing what they should. Like, I, did, I did want to ask you, what does it mean to submit or to be subject to? For me, it's, it's a, a surrendering of your will. So my husband and I were both married, and I surrender my will to his when his will is the same as the Lord's. When we have the same, I surrender to him because what we're doing is we're standing together and surrendering to the Lord. But if I was married to a man that had a will that was not of the Lord, Mm -hmm. um, we're not asked to submit to that. We're not asked to submit our will um, to men but to God. And so I just remember, um, do you remember the America's Funniest Home videos? There was a video once of this man and this woman, and they were exchanging vows and to love. And she goes, to love. And he goes, to obey. And she goes, what? (laughs) But we're not asked to obey. We're not. We're asked to submit our will by choice. And that's what I love about it. Because you're right. Sometimes we do. We bristle at that. And I think that's the adversary wanting us to, and we also want to protect ourselves. But Right. I think the key is, oh, so where is big, their will? My big joke is, I feel the man is the head, but I'm the neck. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. Well, and, and let's read further. Right. Like you said, He's let's gone. read further. <laughs> if you read verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And I love that part, and gave himself for it. And then going to 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And as we saw in 30, 
we are to be one flesh with the Lord. Mm-hmm. That this is, uh, I, th- we talked before about unity, and it's truly being unity with each other, but also with the Lord. And as we do so, that is the submission. Well, that and he's did you see 32 about. where it says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and, and the church. So, Christ and the church is the bridegroom mm-hmm. and the bride. Right. And as we have a healthy marriage, then I think we can see that relationship as being a member of the church with the Savior. Well, I did want to read just a couple of interesting two two things. We love Elder Maxwell. We yeah, love we him. Do. Yes, we do. And the words that he's given us. And of course, one of our favorite talks is this idea of submission of will. And so I do want to reread it. We've read it before, but it is so beautiful when we talk about submission and submit and subjection. He says the submission of one's will is really the only unique personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give are actually the things he has already given or loaned to us. However, when you and I finally submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in God's will— then we are really giving something to him. It is the only possession which is truly ours to give. Another one that I really liked was actually done by Elder Bruce C. Haven, Haven, where he talked about covenant marriage. And this one is a little more controversial, but I wanted to read it and get your opinion on it. He says, The adversary has long cultivated this overemphasis on personal autonomy and how he feverishly exploits it. Our deepest God-given instinct is to run to the arms of those who need us and sustain us. But he drives us away from each other today with wedges of distrust and suspicion. He exaggerates the need for having space, getting out, and being left alone. Some people believe him, and then they wonder why they feel left alone. So what is your thought on on this? This was written in 1996, so I know it was a while ago, but my thought, what do you, you know, now do you think this is still relevant? Oh, of course. God is all about connection, and the adversary is all about disconnection. Anything that he can do to disconnect us from each other and from God and make us alone means that we have, he has more influence over us, we have less hope, and, and we're... We just can't do as much as we can with each other, and especially without God. And just to the quote before that, too, with Elder Maxwell, I have a couple of favorite words, and one of them is nevertheless. Mm. And I think that word is what I call a pivot word, and, and that's what we do in marriage. I want to do this nevertheless. Let's talk about this, and maybe we can compromise. Right. The Savior, this is what he said in the garden nevertheless. Mm-hmm. And so I think the key to a successful relationship is know who, you, know who you're yoked to and what their goal is, and then always having that righteous nevertheless and being willing yeah. to live in that space. I think if our eternal potential is exaltation, so the point is celestial marriage, then Satan is going to try to bring that under attack. I do love verse 31 again. It just, you know, reminding us again, it shall be joined unto wife and they too shall be one flesh. And that mm-hmm. footnote for 31, marriage, celestial unity, that's that's our goal. That's what we're patterned after. And that is our ultimate, hopefully divine. Right. 
Well, I was thinking about Milton's Paradise Lost mm-hmm. and how uh, he goes into detail of what happens in the garden. And one of the things he does is there's one day that Eve kind of gets sick, sick of Adam. And so she's like, just for today, let's be separate. I just don't want to be around you for one day. We just had too much togetherness. And so it's that moment when she's away from him mm-hmm. that Satan comes. And we even see that in the temple, that moment that they're apart. And so I do think the key is that with my husband and I, and I'm going to tell you anyway, if it's more than $40, you have to discuss it together. You can't spend more than $40. That's our limit. So if you want to go do something under $40, go for it. But over 40, you have to talk about it. You have to do it nevertheless. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think COVID has also helped us to understand how important it is that we come together rather than have space. We had too much space. And so because of that, we saw relationships have problems, issues happen. Actually, in marriages, I think maybe they had too much well, together. But there was, still, there was still some sort of disconnection, though, for a lot of people. Kids disconnected from each other. Yeah. Extended families, extended families disconnected. My mom Gee. passed away oh. in, Ju- in July, yeah, July of 2020. And oh, they only let so one bad. person in there at a time. And there was a lot of disconnection, and I think Satan really, really enjoyed that time. And I think now we're we're seeing some of those effects okay, of, that, of that disconnect. I and I think just being able to connect again is so huge. That's true. Now, in chapter 6, verses 1, and I'm going to read verse 4, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. But then verse four is the one I want to focus on. And ye fathers, (laughs) and I would say mothers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so I want to talk for a moment about this provoke not your children to wrath. And it's it's a hard (laughs) one. And the, the thought that came to my mind was this idea of the last straw. And all of us as mothers have felt this, where you have a day where all of these little things happen, and you usually handle them really well, you know, at the beginning of the day. And you're, Speak for you're, yourself. Oh, that's okay, honey. Christine no, and I are just right. like, nope. That's okay. Well, I know for me, oh, with 12 children, you know, so usually amazing. at the beginning of the day, I would wake up, I would say my prayers, I would read my scriptures, and at the beginning of the day, I was good. I was good. Okay, so you had 12 kids it. and you were doing that because I had two and I was like four o'clock. Have I showered yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, so good I job. would be like, I, I love you. It's okay. I love yeah. you. It's okay. And then there would be a final, you know, usually three o'clock was my witching hour. I don't know. Something yes. at three o'clock would happen right. and mm-hmm. it would be a tiny little thing. And that poor child because if he had done it in the morning, I would have been just fine. But because he did it after all these other things, you know, oh. bam. And I, I do think that we do have this last straw kind of mentality sometimes as mothers. But this talk by Elder Lynchy Robbins, for me, it, it's interesting. When he gave this talk in 1998, I was expecting my 11th child. And wow. so I remember this so vividly because when he gave this talk, it was like it was for me, you know. I oh, I, I love when gave that it to me, and uh, so basically, what he talked about was agency and anger. And he said, "Becoming angry is a conscious choice, a decision. Therefore, we can make the choice not to become angry. We choose, unchecked, 
Anger can quickly trigger mm-hmm. an explosion of cruel words okay. and other forms of emotional abuse that can scar a tender heart. Anger is an uncivil attempt to make another feel guilty or a cruel way of trying to correct them. It is often mislabeled as discipline, but is almost always counterproductive. For me, that was a huge aha moment in my life when he gave that talk because it really helped me realize I can't do last straw moments anymore. And I haven't been perfect since 1998, but I can honestly say I have tried much, much harder to not let myself, you know, sometimes we say, well, I just can't help it. You know, it was just, it was the last straw. I just you can't made help me myself. Angry. Right. You, you made, made me, me so angry. mad. Yeah. And instead, we do right. have a choice. Yeah. Well, so when I, was, I wanted to, to when I was working in the group in the group home, one of the things they really pushed was that, and and at Hershey, was that when you're angry or when a child's upset, they can't learn. Their brain has no ability to learn, and they don't only have to go through the arc of being upset; they have to go through a recovery period mm-hmm. before you can revisit. And so you have to wait till they go through that recovery period. So it is interesting because there are going to be moments that you don't want to make them more angry, but they're going to be frustrated and lose it. It's part of being a child. I agree. And they've got hormones flipping out. That was my biggest shock is when boys go through puberty, so many of them, like I had a couple of boys that are just the kindest, sweetest little teddy bears in the world. And then suddenly they have puberty and they lose it and scream at you. And you're like, what? What happened to my beautiful son? But it's it's testosterone. It just is. And so waiting and not provoking because your exact right. moment is to flip back at them the same way they're flipping at you. Instead, waiting for the recovery and then giving them skills is so much more effective. It doesn't feel as good, but it's so much more Well, and I do want to focus on the positive right. where it says, you know, mothers, and I'm putting it as mothers, Provoke not your children to wrath. So how do we do that? I wanted to say, what? how do you do that? How do you provoke not your children to wrath? I try to focus on the lesson or the thing that needs to be learned. Um, for example, if a child does something wrong, then, okay, why was it wrong? And then learning what the natural consequences of those things are instead of giving them some some different kind of punishment or consequence that really doesn't have anything to do with with the action. So focusing on the lesson, I mean, that we're their guides, their teachers, like we're their first teachers, and and that's such an important role. It is hard to check our own emotions, but I think if we can focus on them and what they need to learn in that moment and not our own emotions, maybe it helps Mm -hmm. us focus the energy a little better. And I I do think, oh, sorry, I think sometimes you can see when they're getting there. They're getting to the point where they're going to lose it, and you can stop before Right. And I think having systems so in place, lovely. you know, so mm-hmm. I talked about my youngest daughter who, you know, I, I vision her like, like a mummy who was wrapped up in these issues. And my job was to help unwrap her so she mm-hmm. could really just move and be free and be herself. And some of those issues, her depression manifested in anger. And so it was a little mm-hmm. bit beyond the typical. Mm-hmm. And so to have those processes in place, first of all, to recognize, okay, do you see what your body's doing right now? How are you looking at me? How do you view me? So helping them learn to recognize I'm feeling angry. And then now that you're angry, how can we help you express that? Because sometimes you just have to get that emotion out, especially when they're growing up. And, you know, can you hit a pillow? Can you hit a bed? Can you yell? I mean, even for us, right? We have to have ways to let that emotion out because if we suppress it, it could 
morph into something different. Um, but just to not provoke that anger, I think is, is to first name it and recognize it and say, you're feeling angry. How about you do this for a while? How about you go in your room, not in a timeout, and then calm down? Because you want them to be able to restabilize and recenter so they can be teachable, they can be learnable. Um, but they feel very safe right. when there's a structure in place. Mm-hmm. So um, and when you get angry at them, they don't. That's so good. So I had a tantrum thrower all the way through high school. He was a football player. And he would get so angry. You could just see it. And so what we did is we got a Sharpie out in the garage and we did a big piece of sheetrock. And we said, okay, you can punch holes in the sheetrock all you want, but you can't punch your brothers or sisters. That's what we're doing. So he would lose his temper and then he'd go out and you just hear him, boom, boom, boom. And then one day he's like, oh, and there was a joist and he hit the joist and cracked his knuckle. And we were all like, thank you, Lord. (laughs) And so then he couldn't punch for a while and he got it under control. But of course he was like, getting his beard in he was at that point where it was so like girls cry boys lose it so it just was cute but um but it was a gift but we do we did get them a safe place yeah, just give them to express those because they weren't going to go but then it would be easy to provoke it and make it worse as opposed to oh yeah so but i do want to focus place. on the mother part because i do right. think that we understand about the children mm-hmm. but um i had an opportunity when we lived in washington dc i taught uh parenting classes and these parenting classes were for parents who the courts had told them they had to come to parenting mm. class. And so I would teach it with a, a counselor, and the two of us would teach these parenting classes together. And these were parents who truly were out of control. And so sometimes we focus on the children, but we need to focus on ourselves mm. as parents in terms of sometimes we need a timeout. And one thing that oh, we yeah. would teach them is that you need to meditate. You need to get out of you know this situation. You need to make sure that you are controlling and that it is a choice. And you need to have, as a parent, you need to have those same structures in place yeah. Yeah. so that you know when you get feel that energy rising mm-hmm. and you're about ready to lose it, that then you have things in place that will enable you to stop. I've got to step away for that. I've day. got to. Yeah. I've got yeah. to move yes. and provoke not to wrath. But I just wanted to end here. But it says, "But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord." Yeah. And that's what you I said. Exactly. You win. Ding, well, ding. <laughs> I think the underlying point of all of this is because we love them, we love yeah. our children, we love our families, and unfortunately, I think that love gets so lost in all the anger, or the frustration, or the broken window, or whatever. And I was talking to my hairdresser months ago, and she has um, she has a, a blended family now. She married this wonderful man. They both had children and and she's trying to help mother these children um and she's doing a beautiful job but i think she was focusing on the discipline and all the things and that was like a little bit rougher for a while at the beginning and and i just said to her well they know you're doing this because you love them right and she's like I think so. I'm like, love is the most powerful tool you have as a parent, right? It's the most powerful emotion, really. It should be, hopefully, anyway. And and I think that if that's there, it's really the most transformative one as well. So, gosh, if we love them, they will, yeah, they will want to do better. They will want to learn. They want to be with you and listen to you. And and hopefully, as we, yeah, come together in Christ. So through this, we can bring them to the armor of God. Yes. And that is the point. That is the ending of Ephesians. (laughs) 
And in terms of, and that's the whole point of everything that he's talking about and all the things that we've been talking about in terms of our families and individually is putting on that armor. So we're going to start with Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Well, I love, I love how he bookends this letter to them, right? He starts with, you have a calling, you have something to do. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, he's like, put your armor on because it's go time. Um, I just love how he wants to teach them where their strength comes from, and how to get stronger. So we're going to look in chapter 6, and I love verse 10. So he says, Finally, my brethren and my sistren, be strong (laughs) in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's the first thing he wants to teach them. That's where your strength comes from. It doesn't come from Diana. It doesn't come from your neighbors. It It doesn't come from yourself. Your agency does, but be strong in the Lord. I love that he does that. And then here's his first invitation. Put on the whole armor of God. I love how he doesn't say... Every piece. Put on the armor that you like. (laughs) If that's uncomfortable, you can take that piece off. It's like a seatbelt. I know. (laughs) A seatbelt. I remember when the seatbelt laws first came out. I know, I hate them. I still do. I'm a rebel. They keep (laughs) us safe. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And so here he talks a lot about who we worship, which is God. But here he touches on who is our enemy and it's the adversary. And I think that's really, really important. Sometimes, you know, if we sin, we can think we are our enemy because we're natural, man, we're bad. Um, A few years ago, I created this Facebook group to do research for a book that I was writing about the lies that we believe. And we had almost 200 women be a part of that group. And I took a poll. I said, "What what are the lies that you believe? And so here are the top five lies from these 200 women. Um, And they all come from the adversary. So number five was that I'm weird or different. (laughs) What if it's true? (laughs) But in a it might be. Well, because I'm unique, right? Right. Not everyone's cup of tea, right? Yeah, we're all we're all a little bit different. But when you when you pull yourself out, I I don't fit into the Relief Society Mm -hmm. mold, so I'm not gonna go. Mm -hmm. I don't look like a Mormon, so I'm not gonna go. Mm -hmm. So yeah. He wants that to be different and, and, and bad. Number four, it's my own fault that I'm unhappy, depressed, or weak. Oh. I know these are heartbreaking. And some of these stories that these women share. And and there might be some yeah. truth to certain parts of it, but the adversary wants us to feel shame for who we are. Number three, I should be able to do it on my own. We're setting ourselves up for failure. Number two, my body isn't good enough. And that's just such a heartbreak. And you probably can guess number one, I am not enough. And so here's Paul saying, okay, I've got this armor for you to put on because you have this calling to do. And that's, that's for us too, right? We have things to do. Out of the billions of people that, have the, that don't have the gospel, we do for whatever reason. We're no better, no worse, but we've been called and we've accepted. And so we're going to do it. And I love that he talks about this armor because the adversary tries to confuse our identity he wants us to misunderstand who we are. He wants to see our weaknesses as proof that we're not enough. Instead of just being a part of our condition, of godly, you know, toddler goddesses, right? Um, and then he extends that second invitation again in 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all. And I just want to touch on the first two really quick. Verse 14. The first things he says is stand therefore, having your loins girded about with truth, and having the breastplate of righteous, having on the breastplate of righteousness. And so he basically says, I want you to have the right perspective. 
first, before you even go into battle, see who I am, see who God is, see who you are, remember that, and then remember where your power comes from, and it comes through the covenants. The first things we put on, our identity, we know who we are, and we have that power from the covenants. Wonderful. And Kim, you were going to talk about the feet. I love the feet. This is a good one. (laughs) And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is verse 15 in Ephesians 6. So I love what Harold B. Lee said. He said, your feet represent your goals or objectives in life. Preparedness is the way to victory and eternal vigilance is the price of safety. The tide of victory rests with him who is prepared. I do like that comparison as our feet determine the direction we go in, Mm -hmm. for sure. And they also represent our actions. Are we doing something? Are we anxiously engaged? Or are we just sitting idly by? I I have a little devotional address I'd love to share with you all. It was given um, by a student named Lauren Abraham to Grand Canyon University, though. But it's beautiful. She quotes scripture, and, and I love how she illustrates the point of this. She says, in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us to stand firm with our feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. It may seem strange to consider shoes to be part of your armor, but could you imagine going to battle shoeless? You would most likely be in pain with every step as you pass over all kinds of harsh landscape. Ultimately, it would inhibit your ability to fight. So how can the gospel of peace be related to shoes? To start, we must understand what the gospel of peace is. The word gospel means good news, referring to the sacrifice Jesus made for us so that we can be saved. As a result, this brings us peace. As Christians, we are called to share the good news of Christ with others. Having our shoes fitted with the gospel of peace allows us to do this successfully. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, but give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, troubled, neither let it be afraid. With God's strength, we can be brave in sharing our faith with others. Jesus already defeated death, so we do not need to be afraid. Our shoes equip us to walk us through rough areas. In the same way, having hope in Jesus helps us walk through the trials we face. In John 16, 33, uh, it says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Just like having a good pair of shoes can help us walk through rough terrain, having confidence in Christ allows us to boldly proclaim his name. While we may face persecution in this life, we can rest in knowing the Savior of the world loves us and cares for us. Having our feet fitted with the shoes of the gospel of peace allows us to be ready to share God with others at all times. As Christians, we should always be prepared as we never know when an opportunity may arise to share the good news of the gospel with someone else. Ultimately, the shoes of peace equip us to fight for Christ in the spiritual battles we face. That is beautiful. I love that. And then we talk about, about the shield of faith. I know, and I love that it says above all. Did you see mm. that? Yep. Um, taking the shield of faith wherewith you're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And so the shield of faith, the cool thing about a shield is that unlike everything else that's uh, protective, a shield can move and adjust mm. depending on what darts are hitting us. And um, in Greece, they have these little cute round shields. But this is the Roman era. And Roman shields go from your shoulders down to your knees. They're long. And I even think of the Roman, like where they would get a group of people that had their faith and they would hold it in front (laughs) and hold it to the side and have one person holding it on top. And as a group, we can lift and strengthen each other as our faith is strong. And um, I was just so touched the other day when we had Tiffany over and she bore her testimony of Joseph Smith and it strengthened me in important ways. And I really do think that as we find people 
I may go, man, they have a good shield. I need to be around that person more because they can lift and protect us to be in their um, association. So I love that. But I did want to um, say it was interesting to me that they talk about these fiery darts. And the only time that's mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures is in the Book of Mormon. Did you know about the fiery darts? Yeah. Um, when he talks about the iron rod and he's explaining to his brothers. And he says that by holding on to the iron rod that we can, and it's here in uh, Nephi. Isn't that funny? I think it's 14 or 15. 1523. And he said, what meaneth the iron rod? And he said, I say unto you that it is the word of God and whoso would ever would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations and fiery darts of the adversary overcome them unto blindness and lead them to destruction. So I thought, weird, you're talking about faith, but this is talking about scripture reading. And then President Nelson talks about how to increase our faith. And the first one he talks about study the scriptures. So you're like, duh. (laughs) So he must get it. And then the second one he said was choose to believe. And I love that every once in a while, even with the best shield, you're going to have a fiery dart that's going to hit you. And even though that hits you and injures you, you have to choose to keep going. Mm -hmm. Just do better. Make that um, shield bigger. Get a friend to help guard that side. And so I love that. And then the last two he said was... um, to partake of sacred ordinances, to pray for faith, and then to think, what would I do if I had more faith? And do the thing you'd do if you had more faith. So just try and reach and strengthen. And, I, and so I love that. So remember, Roman shield, Roman knees shield. to shoulders. Mm-hmm. So and the last thing that we're going to talk about is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So this is, and take the helmet of salvation. And for me, that stands for the fact that kind of going to your point, that the helmet of salvation, we understand where we're going. We have that right. eternal perspective. And it's a mind thing. And I think the righteousness is a heart thing. It really is your head. And so, it and then the it. sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which goes along with what your point was. But the interesting thing as I was looking at this is the sword of the spirit also has this power to divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil. And that's taken from Helaman 3.29. So we gain this additional understanding of what that sword of the Spirit does. It actually cuts away those untruths so that we understand what is the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think, boy, in the world that we live in where there's, you know, all of these half-truths that are being thrown at us, all the time, to be able to have the sword of the Spirit to understand what is truth and what is not truth. But for me, the key and the last thing I wanted to bring about is verse 18, because that's what brings the whole armor of God together, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So we are in this together, you know, when we are the army of God. And so as we put on that armor, it isn't a lonely thing. Instead, we are doing it together. And as we do it together, we pray for each other Mm -hmm. and we pray for ourselves to make sure that we keep that strong, that keep that armor strong. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts today. It is so wonderful. And thank you for helping my armor to be strengthened. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.